This episode is brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. And if you've heard me talk about Grammy, you know that she means the world to me. I wanted a dog for probably 10 years and I was living in an apartment, couldn't have dogs. When I finally moved somewhere else, I adopted her within weeks and it was love at first scritch. She's about two feet away from me as I record this. She hangs out in the studio and all I want to do is smooch her and look at her and stare at her. I also like feeding her because I see how happy it makes her. And there's nothing like watching her lick her chops after having yummy stuff like Grammy's pot pie or real Texas beef and sweet potato, which are two recipes she's been enjoying for America. As her parent, I like that they use deboned meat and fish or poultry as the number one ingredient. I also like that they have these real ingredients and you can see them on the bag so you know what's in each one. And watching her do a little dance, especially with a Grammy's pot pie recipe, brings too much joy to my heart. Is there such a thing as too much joy? I'm not sure. But check out Merrick online or in your local pet store and look for their new packaging with real ingredients shown on the bag and inside it. Hey, Fidelity. What's it cost to invest with the Fidelity app? Start with as little as $1 with no account fees or trade commissions on U.S. stocks and ETFs. Hmm, that's music to my ears. I can only talk. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Zero account fees apply to retail brokerage accounts only. Zero dollar commission applies to online U.S. equity trades and ETFs and retail Fidelity accounts. Sell order assessment fee not included. Some account types and securities excluded. Details at fidelity.com slash commissions. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Oh, hey, okay, quick heads up. This is an encore episode because I went to visit my parents this weekend, had a lovely time, and I just straight up needed to put up an encore because I'm still working hilariously on the ADHD episode. And you know what? We've done 250 episodes and maybe like five or six encores. So there's plenty to choose from. And ants. Oh, let's do it. I love this one. I love this ologist. And everyone has ants, but now you'll know the ants that you have. Also, the most swearing done by any ologist, perhaps ever, but in an educational way. Okay. Oh, hey, it's your grandma's new boyfriend who just wants to show you some magic tricks. Allie Ward, back with another episode. Apologies. So it's Tuesday, man. Let's learn about some ants. They're tiny, they're mighty, they're harmless, sometimes not, and they're more organized than all of the clowns on your Slack thread. But you know what? Maybe you don't want to see thousands of tiny ladies having an all-night rave in your cereal pantry. But to quote common parlance, can a bitch live? Let's learn about these little creatures. And more importantly, let's suck some self-help and organizational strategies out of them with a myrmecologist, which is a word you only know about if you're a myrmecologist. But first, pre-usual, you know the drill. I say thank you to people who let me keep the podcast going, all the patrons at patreon.com slash ologies who pay a buck or more a month. And as always, thank you to the folks who say, you know what? This pod is worth mashing the star button on the iTunes app and maybe leaving a review for Dad Ward to creep in the night when she feels lonesome and then read aloud to you to prove that I read them. And I picked a brand new fresh one, February 1st, 2022, people. I went in and I put it in here. I don't slack even when I'm slacking. So thank you, HBXCS, for leaving this review titled The Metric. I frequently compare new podcasts to ologies to determine how good they are. This podcast is simply the best. Thank you for saying that. Which reminds me that we do need a metrology episode about measurements. So thank you to everyone who left a review, though, including you, the amazing Hufflepuff. I read all of yours. Okay, Mir- 
pharmacology. I said that all strung out like a line of ants. Did you like it? Good. Okay, so I'm writing this before looking up the etymology. I'm just going to say, I wrote this before I looked it up. I took a wild guess that it was Greek for ant. Hold on. I googled it. Damn it, I'm right. But it wasn't coined until 1906 when naturalist William Morton Wheeler was like, dang it, I love ants. I need a title that sounds like a wizard. So he took Mirma and put Macologist. There you go. Myrmacologist, done. Now this ologist I had followed on Twitter for months and months and months and months, and our schedules never quite aligned to do an episode. And finally, he was back from the rainforest on a sunny Sunday afternoon, and I was so excited to sit down and chat. So he spends part of his time in the rainforest of Costa Rica studying tropical ants and is also a biology professor at Cal State University, Dominguez Hills, which has over 10,000 students, 70% of whom are first-generation college students. I think that is awesome. Now, the result of this is a whole nest of facts about invasive species and colony communications and the bizarre genetics of queen ants and why army ants are your new squad and what it really, really, really feels like, like for real to get stung by a bullet ant. Is it that bad? And what we can learn about our own strength and work ethic from these lovely ladies and some dudes we call ants. So get ready, make a beeline, make an ant line for this chat with myrmecologist Dr. Terry McGlynn. Yes. Did I say it right? Myrmecologist. Myrmecologist. I think. Well, like all these words, um, there's no proper way of saying it. Mm -hmm. It's just the ones that are socially acceptable among people who do. Mm -hmm. so, so, so you can't say a word wrong. You just say a word different than other people say. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. How long have you been a myrmecologist? I started working on ants in 1994 when I started grad school. So a minute. Yeah. So... That's a couple decades, right? A couple decades? Yeah. Of ants, not literally under your belt, in your pants, but just in your life. Yeah. Um, so what was it about ants? So I realized, okay, this is the one question that I knew you're going to ask. Was, why did you work on ants? Or, right. When I was in college, I started out as a psychology, philosophy, double major. And then I ended up being like pre-med, although in, I'm even, I even interviewed at med school, took the MCAT, the whole thing. I have no idea why. But then I had this epiphany when I was flying home for my first med school interview. And I'm like, this is not what I want to do. These people are not my people. I don't want to do that for a living. And the whole time I, I, in college, I was taking all these courses about organismal biology, ecology, evolution, conservation. I was auditing a class in insect biology. And, and I was like, well, well, that's what I think is really cool, actually. So before getting his PhD in Colorado, Terry majored in biology for undergrad at Occidental College, Obama's alma mater here in LA. And when he was thinking about grad school, he was considering Europe, and he ended up interviewing with a Swiss professor who studied ants. He even flew out to interview the first time he'd ever left the country. Now, in the end, he didn't study at that lab, but the experience of emailing back and forth with this Swiss dude unveiled the tiny, wonderful world of myrmecology. 
And it seemed really, really, really cool. And so after that, I decided, wow, I want to work on the evolution of social behavior in insects and answer, you know, you know, use social insects, ants that have this colonial lifestyle. Now, let's unpack this really quick. Do you think having an interest in social science and philosophy plus a little biology interest like those were married perfectly in a social insect? Maybe because I, I think my interest originally, like, you know, the angsty teenager that just went to college were interested in, well, what makes us human? I was wondering, and I still wonder, like, how is it that we are what we are, that we, you know, they think, we feel, we love, we perceive, but we are just mere meat. Like we are just somehow this tissue of our brain is what we are. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just amazing to me that that everything that we experience is that meat. And it still is amazing to me. Mm-hmm. And I think I wanted to study that. And I realized I don't think neurobiology was there or is there yet to do that. So quick aside, at first I thought he was saying mere me, as in like merely myself, but I think he's saying mere meat, like that we're meat, which is so much more metal. What a metal way to look at our delicate existence. I approve. Um, And so I think what fascinates me about ants is it if you just look at it at a different level of organization like what is a what is an organism what is a super organism what is an ant colony how do you have something which is so well organized um out of small pieces that are really really dumb so many ants right now are sipping oat milk cortados over the economist just being like wow wow really Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> like ants are really stupid, but colonies often do complex tasks really well. I mean, they have small little brains. Walk me through a little bit of a colony because we had an episode on melatology bees. And so we've covered some social insects. But what are the similarities between bees and ants? Are they all mostly women? Are they all like driven by pheromones or behavior or vision? Like what's going on down there? Yeah. So all kinds of bees are complex, just like all kinds of ants are complex. So so the way that honeybees organize the division of labor. And so that what that thing where you do one uh, task, then you get promoted to another task, then you get promoted to another task. That's called the temporal polyethism. So that means at different times, you do different things. Like your chores as a kid may have gone from feeding the cat to doing the laundry to driving your siblings to school. Now, if your kids don't think you're enough of a douche, tell them that it's imperative that they engage in temporal polytheism to acquire their weekly stipend. That way they can talk about you to a therapist later in life. However, some ants might be more inclined to perform some tasks rather than others. Some ants are more generalist, some are highly specialized. Whoa, so there's like engineer ants and like architect ants and ones that are like, you know what, guys, I'm like pretty good at finding seeds. So I'm just going to do that. Sort of. Uh, but if you were to remove some ants from the colony or add some from ants in the colony, they might change their tasks. So some ants have broad variety in, in body sizes. So, for instance, in leafcutter ants, you have these huge, huge ones with these big heads. They're used for chopping stems and defending the colony for like when vertebrates attack. And you have these tiny, tiny little ants that might tend the fungal garden and ride on the leaves. And so the way that the polymorphic ants divide labor and the way that monomorphic divi- ants divide labor is different. It's a little different. Yeah. Now, what is your work like day to day? Do you here's what I picture. Tell me if I'm wrong. Okay. I picture that you work in a lab and it's full of aquariums that are just 
big writhing balls of ants and you also have a clipboard and maybe a lab coat and then sometimes you're in the fields with a magnifying glass is any of that correct no okay just checking (laughs) so i think my average workday is probably not that different from yours which is like i'm sitting in front of a laptop okay um (laughs) or i'm standing at my desk or whatever and so in the lab i have a bunch of ants ton of ants but they're all dead Oh my God. Okay. What are they organized into like a a little tiny pins or are they just in like shoe boxes? So I have them in vials and these vials would be packaged in racks and these racks are on shelves. Okay. And so, um, so like if, you know, visiting a museum, then there's all these ants that are, you know, mounted in collections in pins. And so we, when we mount ants in museum collections, you glue them onto the tip of a little point and put oh. the pin through that so you can look at them. Because if you put the pin through the ant, then it messes them up. So you. Yeah, that'd be like, that'd be like, oh, we just put a missile through Allie. Like, yeah, that's yeah. not, you can't do that to an ant. They're too teeny tiny. Yeah, well, even the really, really big, chunky ants that you could kind of do that to by convention, we don't. Okay. I keep most of mine just sitting in alcohol from the way I collected them. And most of the ants that I've collected are whole colonies. Oh, um, um, but these whole colonies are really, really tiny ones. They like the they would easily fit inside a thimble like they would occupy like a two milliliter tube with tons of space available. They're you just- mean a whole colony is like 200 bros or ladies? Uh, yeah, like, well, it depends. I mean, so some colonies will just have like 10 or 20 or 30 ants and then some might have hundreds. But even for these tiny little ones that I work with on the leaf litter of the rainforest floor, the ants themselves are so tiny that a colony of a couple hundred ants will still fit into a tiny little tube. That's crazy. Because these are unspeakably tiny. How did you get involved with the tiniest ants? Were you like, I have great vision. Ergo, I will work with the tiny ants. No. Uh... Well, no, as actually, and so now I just started wearing like the, the progressive lenses. Hey. Uh, so it's like, uh, so when I'm out in the field with students, like they're seeing things that I literally cannot see. <laughs> Microscopic micro machine. Micro machines and micro machine pocket place that's sold separately from Galoob. The smaller they are, the better they are. So for his dissertation, Terry worked with Wasmania auropunctata. I don't know if I'm saying that right. So let's just call them little fire ants because that's their name. Unless you're from down under. Although in Australia, they call it the electric ant. Um, And these ants are like a couple millimeters long. Teeny. And so really, really tiny. And if they sting you, it feels like a little pink prick. And um, which is amazing. Something that tall can actually, small can hurt you. you I know. Most ants are really tiny. A lot of them are just that small. I'm so little. Like smaller than the ones that we see uh, trying to eat like a watermelon rind on the countertop. Right. Yeah. So here in LA, the ones that you have, I don't know if you get them in your place, but uh, the Argentine ants, people think of the, that's a common invasive species found in Mediterranean climates or whatnot. The one that was taking over my kitchen last week. Oh no. Oh my God. What did you do? Because you're like a godfather to them. Did you commit mass anticide? Yeah. Well, actually uh, I wiped off the ones off the counter. No. How dare you? But but then I just blocked the entrance off. So it's not like I need to kill. I wasn't trying to kill them all off. I just kept them from getting in. So like I have like, you know, the cock gun ready to go and I keep finding a new space where they. So I, it's like the evolutionary arms race is them finding new ways to get in me cocking that spot. So now that is one thing you can do if you don't want to just like send in a poisoned 
cake and be like, kill off your whole colony. That's a nice thing to do. So side note, as a college sophomore, I lived in my first house with friends. Everyone was pretty goth and got along, but one of my roommates was very, very stony baloney. Like a lot, which was so endearing. And we had an ant infestation, and he told me all about these things called Grant's ant sticks. They're these baits that you soak in hot water and then you set out. And he explained it to me like this. Like, all right, okay, like, if you were so hungry, right, and you found, like, 20 pizzas and you took them to your friends and they, and you were like, shit, you guys, pizzas, this rules. And everyone's like, what? This is the best. And then, but the pizzas, like, poisoned everyone. It's, like, so tight. I have never forgotten this tutorial, and I'll be honest. I have used these ant baits every time I've had an infestation, and I felt so bad about it. Like, I'm the villain in their action movie, but it does work for a while. Tight. Yeah, but it's also really, really, that's only going to be a short-term solution anyway. Because yeah. even if you get the toxic bait that they'll take and bring back, which, you know, could be effective, but the thing is... Um, that's going to kill them off for a while, but eventually there's going to be some that are just moving back because you can't eliminate ants from the entire neighborhood. And the mm-hmm. way these, it's essentially, you know, for the most part, it's like one big whole colony, super colony all throughout the LA area. No. Yeah. Wait a minute. Okay. So these Argentinian ants, yeah. which are invasive and they're the tiny, like not tiny, but they're the small yeah. little black ones that invade your kitchen. Yeah. I know that they kind of have outpaced harvester ants, which are the bigger kind of like uh, ambery color ones that live in the hills, right? Yeah, which people call red ants. Yeah, okay. the harvester ants, yeah. Um, but they're, it just kind of spans one big colony under the city? For the most part, or occupying the whole city. This blew my mind. If your friend moves 10 miles away in LA, you will never see each other again. Like Burbank to WeHo, that is a forever goodbye. Just move on. But for ants, they're all essentially roommates. The Argentine ants, the little ones that are invasive species but have like pretty lax dietary tastes, they'll eat almost anything. They have a California colony that stretches 560 miles, which is nothing compared to one colony in Southern Europe, 3,700 miles big. Billions of sisters. So it's no wonder that the harvester ants with their kind of picky diet of locally harvested seeds are getting smoked by their Argentine relatives. The last I know, there's one big super colony. So if we were to get ants in one part of L.A. and move them to another part of L.A., they'll be like, hey, sister, how's it going? And accept them just like the members of the same colony. Wow, that's so weird. And so if you were to grab ants and put them in a vial and then go like 100 miles, 200 miles, either they'll get along or they don't. And if they don't, that means that you've hit a new super colony. And you can tell where the border between the super colonies is because there's like a, a line of dead ants on the ground where they just go to war. No. Call the bunners. Yeah. Are you kidding me? And they're just constantly fighting. But there's one large super colony that, that has taken over most of L.A. And they're all in the same family. So now, even if they're the same species, they'll have a battleground. There'll be like a line of death. Well, yeah. So in general for ants, their biggest enemy is um, another colony of the same species. Oh, it's like humans. Yeah, exactly. Is that like a lot of social animals? Like they they operate as such one massive super organism that like their biggest predator really is their own species? 
Well, I wouldn't say their biggest predator, but their biggest competitor. Yeah. Right. Because mm-hmm. the thing is, I mean, so if they're, con- you know, because if, if a species has a niche and they're nesting in a particular environment and they're consuming the same kind of food and they need the same environmental requirements, then of course, if there's another colony that's just like you that has the same environmental requirements, then they're, they're your biggest competition. Oh. How many species of ants are there? Um, I think described, we might be up to 12,000-ish. I think the estimates people say there's probably about 20,000, but maybe about half of them aren't described. Like we haven't put names to them yet. So if you want to be a myrmecologist, just know that 8,000 species of ants are like, notice me, please, I'm right here. They're begging you to be an ant scientist, but they probably don't know the part about putting some of their friends in jars. Even though it's to identify and save ant kind, it seems like a difficult task for ant lovers. Like, I love you, I kill you, but I love you, but I kill you. Do you have a favorite species of ant, be honest? Oh, it's hard. I mean, I guess one of my favorites are the bulldog ants in Australia, the Myrmecia. What are they? I have to say. Well, so they're really big and they have these bulging eyes, but they're one of the few ants. They almost act like a vertebrate. Like most ants, if you mess with their colony, even like the big bullet ants that I work with and whatnot, that they sort of just run around and get upset and like, oh, I might sting you. Oh, look, I'm fierce. Or they'll freak out or run away. But the bulldog ants, they'll just send a few ants up out of their nest and they'll look at you and just open their mandibles and be like, I see you. It's like, what? It's like they're just, yeah, they just stand up and it's like, it's like an intimidation thing. And also they have a really painful sting. So, I mean, they're actually, you know, um, honestly advertising how badass they are. So bulldog ants actually mad dog. Now, okay. Explain to me a little bit about the social behavior. Cause I think that's one thing that people are just like mesmerized by ants because they have this social behavior. They have these tiny little brains how do they do it? Is it all through pheromones? Like, is it just innate? Uh, what's ha- like? What is even happening here? Yeah, uh, I mean, so clearly, ants communicate with chemicals a lot. Chemicals are a huge, big part of their communication. I mean, visual inputs for the most part. There are some blind ants, the ones that live underground, usually don't have eyes or don't use them or whatever. But we're still working out in detail, like which chemicals are used in what circumstances. So some will have a very discrete signal. Um, like, for example, in a famous circumstance, it's like if you put this one chemical on an ant that commutes to other ants that they're dead, so they'll pick it up and drag them into the, the waste pile. Even if they're kicking and screaming, being like, what's up? Hey, assholes, I'm fully alive. And they're like, sorry, you smell like a corpse, so you're out. Yeah, that's totally the story. Yeah, like, you know, Wilson did. It's like that was the comical thing. He would paint a live ant with a chemical that says that they're a dead ant. And then the ants would be dragged living over to the dead pile. That's yeah. so rough. The concept is, is that the way that colonies divide labor essentially that some ants will do some things other ants will do other things mm-hmm. and it's and it we we have we're not even close to understanding the details of how one species does things differently from another species and why so friends if you take ants a colony of ants and you put them like in an area there's dirt and let's say and you give them a chance to excavate a nest mm-hmm. like so different species will have different nest architectures and it's Whoa. like you know and so you can look at the structure of a nest or a structure of a nest entrance or you could do a casting of the nest and be like, oh, I think I know what species it is just on the shape of the nest that they dig. And so how is it that every that a species is socially organized to do something like that repetitively? I mean, there's still so much to learn. But in general, it's thought that the way that colonies organize complex behavior is based on 
interactions with one another. So if you interact with an individual, then that communicates different kinds of information, depending on what chemicals you share, what body posture you have, you know, like in honeybees, for example, what orientation your body is. So from all of these small little pieces of behavior, and then we have a complex colony emerge. So a lot of small, simple computers can make a big, complex computer. And yes, of course, this is being studied by the military. Imagine a million tiny robot soldiers. Or maybe don't. Do you get optimistic about solving future problems with maybe some themes or things we've learned from ant behavior? Or are you like, oh shit, we're going to learn from ants and we're all going to kill each other? I'm terrified at the concept that we could use, you know, learning, education, and technology to do bad things regardless. Right. And so I think there's, if we study how social insects work, there's a lot of power in understanding how the world works. And so I think by studying insects, then we can tap into lots of new knowledge. And then it's up to us to use that wisely. Now, can you give me some hot goss? Can you like spill the tea on some of ants crazy behaviors like what kind of real housewife shit happens in those colonies also are they mostly ladies yeah oh yeah so yeah so uh this we mentioned before so just like in uh almost all social insects except for social cockroaches formerly known as termites oh um, wait what yeah yeah termites are now called social cockroaches when did that happen <sighs> well it happened like 10 years ago but now people are getting their heads around this so another detail to get your head around I'll say this fast because A, it's unrelated to ants and B, it's disgusting. So termites eat wood and cockroaches are coprophages, which means they're feces eaters. And scientists think that being friendly and eating each other's snacky waste could have set the stage for good gut biomes that are able to digest wood. So that's how cockroaches turned into termites. Thank you. I'm sorry. Let's get back to ants, specifically the dames. Ants and bees were looking at a bunch of ladies. Yeah, yeah. So all workers are female. And so in in pretty much almost all colonies, if you're seeing a, an ant that has no wings, mm-hmm. um, then it's going to be a, a female worker. Do boy ants have wings? Yeah. So almost, almost all the time, uh, the boy ants will have wings um, and their job is to have sex and then die. I mean. And that's it. So boy ant to-do list is like be born, have wings, have a nuptial flight, mate, and then die. You're done. And P.S. the male ants, who are not called uncles, but rather drones, and the queens will usually mate when it's humid out or after it rains so that she can get laid and then rip off her own wings casually and then pump her babies into a hole in the earth thus starting one big, happy, kind of overworked family. And now remember, the family that sniffs and rubs their bodily secretions on each other together stays together. So what kind of behaviors, what kind of actions and behaviors do they have in terms of communicating with each other? They meaning the ants? The ants, yeah. Um, I mean, so there's, I mean, some, sometimes they'll actually perform physical movements on one another to communicate things, but it's pretty much, it's all chemical for the most part. Or do they say things like, hey, there's a fruit loop over there, or hey, watch out, there's a, there's a weird anteater lurching about, like, what kind of, what are they chatting about? Well, I mean, so there's big categories, 
that you can put pheromones into. And so then there's uh, recruitment pheromones, which is like, hey, the food's over there. And then there's trail pheromones saying, well, this is the trail. And so there are different kinds of trail pheromones, like some are long-term trail pheromones that will last for a long time saying, this is our big long-term trail. Or a couple, sometimes you'll have trail pheromones that evaporate really quickly or that are short-term trail pheromones. Whoa. So they know, is this, pardon this question, is it just coming out of their butt? Where, what's, where is it coming from? Uh, so so they have different glands in different parts of their bodies. Okay. And so some of the glands, like for instance, the alarm pheromones are in the mandibles, the mandibular glands. And so once in a long while, we're still discovering new glands. Um, but, Whoa. you know, but there's a few key glands, you know, in the head or in the middle part of the butt that, yeah. So they're like, it's just a short term trail. We're not going to hang here for too long. So they're just going to like squirt some stuff out of their their thorax. And then that evaporates. Then then the wow, the alarm ones near their mandibles is really interesting. Yeah, which means like attack what's near there. Yeah. Um, you know, but there's also just like, for instance, with like we were talking about with the Argentine ants and their super colonies. So one of the things that we find is the reason the ants will accept or reject someone into the colony, the pheromones. So the ants have to really physically rub up against one another to smell these. Like, but once you touch, then you would come in contact with this pheromone, which is like a long chain carbon, which is not volatile. And so if that matches is their own, then they recognize them as colony mates. But if those compounds are different enough, then they recognize them as different. So if you were to give ants the same, coat them with these chemicals, then they'll recognize one another as colony mates. Oh my God. So you can almost trick them into being like, no, 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 you guys are cool because you just coated them with the same kind of perfume. Yeah, to some extent. Yeah. But also if you were to take a colony and then split it apart and give them different kinds of food that have different kinds of chemicals, then they'll stop getting along with one another. So side note, I had a boyfriend years ago who ate one bowl of epically pungent garlic soup one fateful day. And I thought maybe we were going to break up. I thought that was the end. I considered it. I just did not know how to cope politely. I mean, how do you approach invasive species? Because clearly you marvel at ants. Are you like, ah, I, I'm, I'm pissed off at you guys because you are maybe um, like outpacing native species? Or do you just say like, let nature be nature? So I studied invasive species for my dissertation. I'm gotten past that i'm doing other things now but i mean and so i mean it's a problem it's a problem because especially in ants it seems for at least you know 50 to 100 years after they arrive they really um reduce the abundance of other native ants but i mean also just pragmatically speaking it's an economic problem because most of these invasive species cause problems that disrupt trade or um, could be human health problems or cause problems for endangered species with uh red imported fire ants they'll like eat ground nesting birds what yeah they'll eat a bird like the little baby bird i think they have trouble getting it to the eggs but as soon as they hatch then they'll swarm over the nest oh my example. god so like so endangered so in ground nesting birds in the southeastern u.s um are really at risk because of you know this invasive species why do some ants want to eat an apple core and others are like <laughs> well i mean so species are different right and so i mean so all different kinds of ants have all different kinds of diet but i mean some ants primarily eat other ants like army ants army ants eat other ants so most army ant species are specialists on other social insects so other ant colonies and like wasp colonies and termites and yeah oh i didn't know that yeah what are I'm okay, because there are some there are some species of ants that have reputations. 
fire ants, army ants, mm-hmm. bullet ants. Mm-hmm. What is it about those species that are just like more ferocious or more threatening to people? And should we be yeah. marveling at that instead of being like, hey, ants, knock it off? Oh, I think we totally should be marveling. Yeah, ants are they're amazing. Yeah. Um, so army ants aren't really a threat. I guess if you were to put a baby in a bassinet uh-huh. and let it sit there as army ants went through, well, then that probably would not be good news because it would get stung a lot right but but otherwise like army ants are great if they come through your house you step outside for a couple hours you come back and they've cleaned out all the insect pests Um, have they really they've just marched through and been like i ate a cockroach i ate a moth yeah seriously and so it's normal so i think there's this notion that they're incredibly efficient but I've got. I've looked through places where army ants had just roamed through. There's still bugs in the litter. They didn't get everybody. They didn't get everything. Yeah. A little sloppy. And now, what about bullet ants and fire ants? Why are they called those things? Well, bullet ants, um, just call bullet ants because it really, really hurts when they sting you. Why um, does it hurt so bad? Why does it hurt so bad? Like, could be like approximate answer, which is like, well, it's because the structure of this ponerotoxin, you know, the alpha ponerotoxin and beta ponerotoxin causes a lot of pain, right? But right, but the real question is, well, why is it they evolved a toxin which is so much more painful than everyone else? Mm-hmm. So my pet concept behind that is, well, bullet ants are huge and they also have pretty big colonies considering their size. The colonies can have a few thousand individuals when they get to be big. And so the larvae and the pupae are really big and chunky. It's like a really, really good meal. Mm-hmm. Like I can imagine like a kawadi or a peccary or someone digging up the ground and would love eating all of those this just in a kawadi is a very cute long-faced raccoon looking idiot and a peccary appears to be a spindle-legged forest piggy with frothy texas hair and they would probably love to eat soft squishy bullet ant babies like swedish fish you know Mm-hmm. And so, the, because they offer such a massive nutritional reward to someone who attacks the colony, they probably have to deter vertebrates really well. And so, no vertebrate in its right mind is going to mess with an, with a bullet ant colony. And so, their colonies, you could probably like dig and access them within several seconds if you had like a shovel or good digging claws. But you'd just be crazy to because they sting so badly. Whereas so many other ants, if they have a lot of nutritious prey available to them, mm-hmm. then they're probably deep in a piece of wood. Like carpenter ants get to be almost as big as bullet ants, but they don't even have a sting and they bite you, but it's not the worst thing in the world. It's just that, but they're nesting in wood. You're not going to rip open like a whole, you know, tree mm-hmm. to eat a carpenter ant colony. So bullet ant colonies are really vulnerable um, if they're just in soil at the base of a tree. That's a great answer. So the lesson is hide your shit or be prepared to defend it. Now, how do you feel when you see people say in like science programs or YouTube that are like, I put my hands in a fire ant colony or I let a bullet ant sting me to see how it would feel. Are you just like shaking your damn head on the side? Well, I mean, I think with the fire, ants, that's just, I don't know, that's just kind of dumb, I think. I mean... <laughs> Gosh, it's going to hurt. I mean, you've, you've seen, I mean, people with fire ants, if fire ants sting you, you get all these welts and it, you get the blisters and it's horrible and it's painful. Um, and so you know what's going to happen. But I think with bullet ants, what happens is you get stung 
and it looks like nothing initially you might swell up or whatever but then you see people reacting in extraordinary pain and it's a matter of curiosity right i've had it, several students intentionally get themselves stung by bullet ants because they wanted to know what it felt like and 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 it really hurt <laughs> what did they do what kind of reactions happen well they just they just scream their heads off and oh. then use all kinds of cursing you so I've worked with bullet ants. I've published a few papers on them and I've only been stung by them once. And that was in the lab when I was being dumb. And so it's possible to work with them and not get stung if you just treat them with respect and understand how they behave. Well, hello, what happened? What happened? Tell me everything. You were in the lab. You got stung with by a bullet ant. Where? How? How? So I was in the lab and I needed to weigh this ant because I was putting, um, we're doing experiments with microbes in their guts. And so um, to weigh the ant, I needed to put it in a container um, and weigh the ant in the container. Then you subtract the weight of the container. But I realized that when I weighed the cup it didn't have a lid on it and i was like oh i need to weigh a cup with a lid but i wasn't thinking that that cup that had the lid on it was the one that had the ant that i was weighing in it oh, no. i just wasn't thinking and so the moment i got the lid off p.s if you haven't already now would be a good time to cover the ears of your children or my mom you know, it just got me right on the tip of my finger. And I was like, fuck, 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 And I flung the ant like somewhere in the balance room. It was roaming around. Meanwhile, so I have like, like this, you know, sophomore in college. I'm showing her how to do this experiment for the rest of the summer. Then she sees this. Oh, it was like, oh my God, it was so bad. It was oh, really, really bad. Did you ever find the flung ant? In oh, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, they're huge. How do you not find it? Okay, I looked these things up and they are meaty as hell. They're about as big as a wingless wasp, but with a sting. Some experts say is 30 times more painful than a bee's. Worse than childbirth and being burned. P.S. How do we know that? Well, one Cornell University study in the 1940s was trying to measure comparative pains using something that's still called a dolorimeter. Dolor, by the way, is just straight up a noun, meaning great sorrow or distress. So they use this dolor meter. And during childbirth, the team of scientists, James D. Hardy, Harold G. Wolfe, and Helen Goodell, um, heated, I mean, I guess burned women to ask, which feels worse? And the answer must have been a consistent fuck off enough that they stopped using this method. Now for Terry, who has a child but no experience shoving one out of an orifice, how would he describe it? Right. Oh my God, what did it feel like? So the, oh. the way I explain it, I've seen multiple people get stung, right? And so, or at least see the after effects. And so it affects different people differently. Mm -hmm. So it's not to say that everyone else will have this response. But for me, it was like, if you put your finger on a countertop and I were to give you a hammer <laughs> and ask you to hit it as hard as you can, that's what it felt like. <laughs> yeah. I, how long does it last? Well, the common one common name that people have for them is Romiga 24, the 24-hour ant. No! So mine did not last 24 hours, but it really hurt. So, I mean, so I took a full oh. dose of ibuprofen and Benadryl because my hands started to get really puffy. Um, oh, and so it was throbbing enough where I just couldn't focus on anything. So it was like my day was kind of done. Uh, yeah, you um, think? And then like, then my, 
I had lost muscular strength in the hand. Like I couldn't hold a coffee cup in this hand. Like, like I just couldn't squeeze enough to hold it. It was weird. And then that evening, like the whole hand was like numb. Like I would poke it and I couldn't feel it. That's, oh my God. Yeah. Um, Here's a question. If you could do your whole life over and you had a chance to not have that happen to you, would you erase that from your experience or are you in some way glad that you know what it's like? I guess, well, enough people have asked me what it feels like. What did what it, did it, feel, it like? Like? What did feel like? What did it feel like? That it's better to have that experience than to be like that smug dude who's like, well, I'm so careful I never get stuck, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, I have heard also like uh, Phil Torres, the lepidopterologist that I interviewed about butterflies. He says that entomologists have a rite of passage of like everyone kind of wants to get a bot fly larva stuck in them. Do ant research say like do ant researchers say like mm, I kind of want to see what this is like? You know, I don't think it's like, uh, no, I think among the ant people I know, it's the a more a, at least the ant men I know, uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, they would be more into, I think they, a, a bot fly would still be a bigger rite of passage than like a than bullet thing, probably, yeah. Oh my God, what's the craziest thing that you've seen in the field or the, the craziest behavior you've ever witnessed? Wow, I would say probably the coolest, coolest thing I've seen are kidnapper ants. What the hell? So, so people used to call these slave making ants, but I don't think that really describes their behavior well. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so, so what kidnapper ants are and those, um, and this actually, I just saw, I've saw it, seen in Arizona. So they are colonies that go on seasonal raids where they um, find the colonies of other ants and steal their brood and bring them back to their own nest and raise them up. And then those ants live there. So they're like, so they're kidnapping baby ants from other colony. What? And then those ants. So if you were to look at a kidnapper ant colony, uh -huh. there's two kinds of workers. There's the kidnapper ants themselves, which are like big and bright orange. And then the ants that they stole who are working alongside them thinking they belong there, but they were actually no. kidnapped. Is that a matter of pheromones? Do they rub their pheromone on it where they're like, you think you're, you can't tell that we are not your real family? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, so the thing is, if you're raised in that environment, then you'll basically be having the odors that come from that environment. And so we know that kidnapper ants will use pheromones to disrupt the communication of the colonies. So these ants that get raided by kidnapper ants, they kind of know it's coming. I mean, it's evolved over like, you know probably millions of years. And so, um, and so, and so they've evolved some kind of defense, but obviously the defenses aren't quite good enough. So does that mean that the kidnapper ant queen is kind of like a cult leader? She like a David Koresh of like a, yeah. a Jonestown, like she's like, yeah, you belong here and you love it. Keep working. You totally can imagine <gasps> that. Yeah. And now what are ant queens like? I should have asked this earlier, but what are ant queens like? Are, are they just pumping out babies all the time? Like, do they get killed and eaten by someone when they're ready to go? Yeah. So, so most folks, the, the popular conception is that queens run the colony. Mm -hmm. For the most part, like queens are not in charge. It's the workers that are running the colony. And so the queen, if anything, is the captive of the ants because um, the ants, because the the queen is doing the reproductive labor for the colony and the ants are doing all the other labor. Oh, wow. And so, and if a queen has only mated once, then because of bizarre genetics that we could get into, um, the, the workers are more related to the queen, to their sisters, the queen's daughter, um, than the queen is to her own daughters. 
Weird. So you could argue that the queen is actually doing the reproductive work, you know, for her daughters who are in the colony. Ooh, that's some Handmaid's Tale yeah, shit right there. Yeah, totally. And what does your research right now deal with? Like, what what's your bread and butter research? So the, the way a friend of mine described what I what I do, he's like, I really like when you do that experimental natural history, and I'm like. Oh, that's a good word for it. Oh, I know. So, so I, so what I do is I find, you know, there's so many curious, weird phenomena that we don't understand out there. And I'm like, you know, I think I'm going to try to do experiments to try to figure out what's going on. And so I have a few different things I'm working on. Okay. Um, so one thing is I'm understanding, and this is what a lot of people are working on this for good reason, uh, the thermal biology of ants and how um, they adapt are adapting to hotter temperatures. Oh, uh, God. And, and so the way I've been looking at this is looking at variation within a colony and how that might evolve and how colonies use behavioral flexibility um, to respond to changing temperatures. So a lot of people are looking at differences among species to think how about how things will change but i think actually ant colonies might evolve to behaviorally adapt to higher temperatures oh wow that's crazy do you think that they'll store more water or seek higher ground or lower ground or yeah they might nest deeper uh they might forage at different times of day or nest in deeper leaf litter but it looks like that they're more adaptable than people thought Ooh. i mean so that's one thing i'm working on there's this other group of ants that i'm working on um that move their nests all the time um well many ants People think of ants as like, here's a hole in the ground where the ant colony lives. Mm -hmm. um, but it turns out um, that the majority of species move their nests on a regular basis, like every few weeks, every few months, once a year. And people and so I've been working to show people that this is actually kind of the way the ants are. They're not like miniature plants rooted in the ground, but just like our invasive argent ants move all over the city. Even if you go. Don't look at invasive species. If you're just looking at natural areas, ants moving their nests is a pretty common thing. And so I've been trying to figure out how and why that happens in a couple species. Why does it happen, do you think? Well, in different, it's it's very different for, depending upon the species you're looking at, mm -hmm. um, about what the advantage is. Like there are some that do it because they're trying to find a sunnier patch. And so if the structure of the forest changes, so they end up in a place that's shadier, they need to move to a place that's more sunny. Oh my God, they do the skedaddle. Yeah, totally. Now, how do you feel when you see people pouring like molten aluminum into an ant colony? So side note for a visual, just imagine like a small, squat, shiny metal Christmas tree that a robot might put up or shimmering silver coral or maybe a bush Dr. Seuss would dream up for the future. Now, if you Google anthill art, you can see the products and some art displays and also the process. And in so doing, you will again realize that we are the villains in an ant's action film, for sure. Because I know that they can then dig it up and it's this beautiful branching structure, but I'm also like, dude, the ants. Uh, I, don't, I just see it as like a gorgeous work of art. I mean, so it's like I, I estimated on the back of an envelope the number of ants that I killed. And it was like on the low end, very low end, it's like a quarter million, half million. So, I so I, so I, you know, it's maybe there's little wanted posters of me inside the <laughs> ant colonies, you know. Unlike a lot of other people who study insects, I actually work really hard to avoid collecting. Um, and I think biological 
collections are very important and we should continue to build and maintain collections. But I think we need to think hard about the ethics of how we do this. There's a lot of data to be acquired from those too. I know people are now doing that as an art piece, but also a lot of what we've learned about Nest architecture has done, has come from that kind of casting. Right. And so the guy who pioneered this technique, uh, Walter Schenkel, you know, has done all this amazing work on the architecture of nest colonies. Before doing the metal casting, people would cast colonies with dental plaster. Oh. Because you need something that goes down the fine little holes the ants crawl through if you're going to cast the whole colony. And so dental plaster is fine enough that you can penetrate it the colony really well. But then digging up the colony is so difficult because you, it doesn't come up in one piece. So then you have to reconstruct it. So a metal casting of the colony stays intact, but the plaster cast has to be reconstructed like a jigsaw because it breaks apart. Now, however, molten metal, surprise, destroys all the ants, while the plaster can be washed away later and the scientists can figure out which ants were kicking it in which part of their house. And so you can be like, oh, these ants were in this chamber. These ants were in this chamber. Oh, wow. You can't do that with metal. Clearly. Exactly. Can you imagine if just a, just a wall of molten metal <laughs> came out like a flash flood? Out of nowhere. Yeah. You're just like, we out. Oh, my God. Are you ready for rapid fire round? Uh, sure. Okay. Patreon questions. I got... Like 80 questions. Okay. But we're not going to do all of them because some people ask the same questions. We're going to run through as many as we can. Are you ready? Okay. Okay. But first, we're going to throw some money at a cause. So this episode first aired in 2018 when we didn't have ads because I didn't know that you can have ads but say no to ones that you don't like. So now we have ads and I say no to ones I don't like. And then with the money, sometimes we buy the guest a buffalo. Life. Man. So we are donating to one of Terry's favorite causes, ESA Seeds, which is a mentoring program for underrepresented higher education students to explore careers in ecology. And it's hosted by the Ecological Society of America. And the Seeds Field Trip Endowment provides quality field experiences to undergrads, including those who didn't have an outdoorsy experience as kids. So that donation in Terry's name was made possible by these ward-approved sponsors you may hear about. What do you get for the mom who burst you into the world? I know, a candle. Are you like, no, that's not quite enough. How about memories that she'll love looking at every day? Aura frames? I love them. So they're a digital photo frame. They were named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and by me. And Aura frames are Wi-Fi connected. You can add unlimited photos and videos, and you can invite as many people as you want to the frame. There are absolutely no hidden fees. There's no subscriptions. You can also react with cute emojis if you'd like, and you can show you love a photo. You can send congratulations or more. It's so wonderful that A, it's not a candle and also it's not sharing your photos on social media to look at it's just there you can share it with the people who you love i have mentioned this so many times but my parents have an aura that i got them my dad loved that i have gotten aura frames for friends for family members for family members of friends so i'm a really big fan of them i love what they do and right now aura has a great deal for mother's day listeners can save on perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best selling frame. So that's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use the code ologies at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. I love these things. 
Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Do you know what that means? It means I won't be making soup over a hot stove. I will be making Factor because they are fresh, never frozen meals that are dietitian approved. They're ready to eat in just two minutes. And watch out, they're delicious. I was like, are they really as good as people say? I have some neighbors. One of them's a nurse. One of them is a firefighter. And yes, they're both as attractive as they sound. They're like, yeah, we love Factor meals. And I was like, I bet you do. You're gorgeous. Boom. Tried them. I was like, these are delicious. They're also good for days when I'm lazy. They have 35 different meals. You'll always have new flavors to explore. I have never had a factor meal that I've been like, nah. They've all been so good. Restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon and shrimp and blackened salmon. Also way more healthy and less expensive than takeout or ordering in. So there you go. Trust my hot neighbors. Head to factormeals.com slash ologies50 and use the code ologies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code ologies50 at factormeals.com slash ologies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Bon appetit, you're welcome. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success. So you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. I know I usually save my secrets for the end of the episode, but I'm going to tell you my secret favorite candy. It's Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. It's really Reese's anything, but Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the thing that I'm like, have I had a bad day? I get these. Have I had a good day? I get these. Chocolate, salty peanut butter, the textures. I love everything about them. Also that there's two. So I'm like, oh, I get this one for later, which is one second later. Anyway, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. I love you. That's all. If you're me, you can shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you. Found wherever candy is sold. And I am. Okay, your questions. Let's answer. Let's answer them. <sighs> Sarah Nichelle wants to know, why do bullet ants scream when they attack? Is it an intimidation tactic? I, uh, some people think so. I think it could be. Yeah, so bullet ants make this when you disturb a nest. And the odor is a little garlicky when they do that and so i'm assume and so i jump back when i hear it and so i imagine that other vertebrates do too because that way it's a warning sign my guess is yes but it has been shown experimentally sure if you hear that i mean why do you think rattle rattlesnakes have rattles right they're like don't make me use this venom exactly so they're like you know what's coming it's like the ice cream truck but like with pain and death. Todd McLaren wants to know, what's the deepest ant hole recorded? Any idea? So I know there are, if you were to look at leafcutter ant colonies, they can go like maybe 10, 20 meters deep, I think. Um, there are probably some that go deeper that we haven't collected. Like I know people that have tried to excavate colonies where like there are these, there's these volcano ants in Australia where they make these tiny little mounds of soil that look like volcanoes mm-hmm. um, and you try to dig them up and the hole just goes deep and deep and deep and deep. So I know people have gone down many meters and not found them. Damn. That's some, that's some spelunking right there. Yeah. For reals. Um, Jessica Chamberlain wants to know if you're mean like my husband and squish a scout ant that you see 
you know, on its own in your house. Will the colony send another scout to look for it or will they just abandon their fallen comrade? Um, my ex- so I'm just speaking from experience. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's in your house and you have one ant roaming around, if you if it's the very, very first ant in theory, maybe, but in practice, probably not. Oh, really? OK, so probably send more. All right. So they're just like, hey, where's Heidi? And they're right. like, I don't know. We'll go find her. Maybe right. she found good stuff. Yeah, I think they probably forget that. I mean, it's better to do that than not if you don't want him to come back. But I think it's probably futile. Right. I think I'd look for the caught gun instead. Okay. Or so, follow her and see where she goes. So if you keep following her and she's like on her way home, she's like doing her home commute, you can find where the entrance is. Totally. <gasps> Which is about like what how I spend most of my time in the forest. If I'm follow- like, if you want to find an ant colony, give them food, then they'll walk back to their home. So actually, if you're trying to get rid of that scout ant, what you do is feed her, then see what crack she's going to go into, then kill her and cover up the crack. <gasps> that's that's really calculated. Yeah, that's not that's like definitely premeditated first degree instead of just a crime of opportunity or yeah. passion. <gasps> that's yeah. amazing. You're like, oh, do you want a crumb? And she's like, I'm going to thank you so much. I'll take this home. And you're like, no, you won't, bitch. Several people wanted to know how are ants so strong? How can they lift 10 times their own uh, weight? Rada, Evan, McKenna all wanted to know how much weight can ants carry? Why are they so strong? So I think the answer is they can carry like maybe 100, 200 times their mass or something like that and so the answer is is that ants are not particularly strong it's just a matter of scaling for body size so in other words if you were to shrink your own body down to the size of an ant Mm -hmm. then you would be as strong as an ant that size okay and so it's scaling the way that muscles work is their power it's a function of like the cross-sectional area of the muscle essentially okay and so if you shrink down then you're just that much more powerful and so just like if you were to take an ant and to scale them up to our size uh-huh. then they'd only be as strong as us they could barely do a push-up and they're like uh my luggage is too heavy will someone put it in the overhead for me i had no idea i thought they got so much props i thought they were just like mystically strong yeah totally who knew physics scaling um cody Wappenkamp and dave miller both pretty much wanted to know someone once told me that based on estimates ants outnumber humans am i gullible or is that fact true and is it true that the weight of all the ants in the world exceeds the weight of humans so let's debunk some flim flam numbers and weights of ants versus human Oh, there's way, way, way more ants than people. There has to be. Oh, for Like real. any back of the envelope calculation. I would say every other thing that people say about ants dates back to an off-the-cuff thing that, that E.O. Wilson said 20 years ago. So for some context, 89-year-old American biologist and author E.O. Wilson is said to be the world's foremost expert on ants. And he postulated in a 1994 book, quote, when combined... All ants in the world taken together weigh about as much as all human beings. Like all myrmecologists know this quote. Mm-hmm. And so that's the thing about the mass of ants being equivalent to the mass of people. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, getting more myrmecologists using more back of envelope calculations, we're like, yeah, that sounds fine. Okay. So ants outnumber human beings definitely numerically and also by weight. Yeah, or maybe about the same, but ballpark, it could be within an order of magnitude, you know, the same as more or less. Woo. Okay, so then that's not even flim flam that we needed to debunk. 
Yeah. That's some real shit. Kendall, Thorsten, Christopher Barley, and Eva all want to ask about ant farming. Like, do they farm aphids? You mentioned something about a fungus farm. Like, how did they get so good at farming? Like, does that make them smarter than early humans? Well, that makes them more social. I mean, so, I mean, so the question is, what is smarts? Mm-hmm. Right. This is a, your philosophy background. <laughs> um. So, so the the party line is that ants evolved agriculture sixty million years ago with fungus growing ants. Oh my um, god! And so they, you know, collected bits of like animal poop or whatnot. And so famously, now leaf cutter ants will cut leaves and they'll grow a big garden. So remember, there are the leaf cutter ants that take leaf pieces and grow fungus on them. Well, meanwhile, me. And a live human who can drive a car and Skype France has killed three cacti in the last year. And so they and so they carefully tend to this garden and they use the same kind of integrated pest management that we use in our crops. Oh, my God, that's crazy. You know, and there's weeds that grow in there and they've evolved relationships with bacteria that attack those weeds and all that, you know. And so every single day, you know, there's someone in a few labs that's discovering a new partner in this co-evolved complex situation of how ants do this. And so wow. so I would say the analogy for farming would be with fungus growing ants, whereas the analogy for ranching, I would say would be with aphids right oh my god right because so so ants will occasion will grow aphids and they will milk the aphids to get their honeydew which is basically the leftover sugary stuff that the aphids don't consume when they're feeding on plants and so um and there's also caterpillars that will do this with ants too i mean that's this is essentially just like like nectar pee right yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Um, but also analogously, in addition to milking cows, that occasionally will kill them and eat them. You know, the same thing goes with the ants and the aphids. They, they won't, you know, they might eat an aphid once in a while. And are they managing the herd? Oh, they carefully, yes. They will transport them around um, and adaptively manage it. They Sometimes, you know, they'll kill off a plant by using too many of them. But oftentimes they use ranching management techniques. Yeah. That's so Wild West. That's insane. So cowboy. Okay. So Kristen McAdams and Lily Hill both want to know, why do fire ants hate me? They both asked, in particular, why do fire ants hate me? So Lily and Kristen at least know it's not just you. And Mark wants to know, how can they act as both a solid and a liquid? So fire ants, what's their beef about? And also, are they solid or liquid? Yeah. So... Why are fire ants are just like, like so mad. So ants will defend their nests. Mm -hmm. And so if you take an individual fire ant, it it can walk on you and it's not going to sting you right away. But the thing is, if you disrupt a mound, then it's going to get really mad at you. And so most other ants, you can't destroy their mound so easily because they're underground or something. Whereas fire ants have this big soil mound above the surface. And so if you kick that soil mound, then they're just going to get really pissed because it's like you just took apart their home. And so I think they seem to be more angry because the structure of their home is a lot more are likely to be disturbed. And they also have a potent sting that goes with it. Lesson, insecurity makes us bitches. And so the whole solid liquid thing is like, and so in how they can, they can float and raft 
you know, when it floods. So it's cool. So fire ants evolved in these uh, seasonal floodplains in, in South America. And so w- when it floods, the colonies can just pick up and then raft along and then land when the waters recede. And so the ants' bodies will cling together. And then if you have a whole bunch of ants clinging together, then they will like pour with these physical properties. Well, actually they act as a liquid, but the ants themselves also can be a solid. And so I don't think I can offer a solid answer with respect to physics, how they do that, but it's super cool. I floated this idea by Google and it turns out that the little hairs on their tiny lady legs trap enough hair to keep them all afloat. So congratulations. There is another reason to avoid shaving your legs today. Oh, Olivia Roos, great question, says, as soon as she saw this post, it reminded me of the infection that turns ants into zombies. What is it and what's the life cycle? This is cordyceps? Yeah, yeah. so the the common name, cordyceps, like mm-hmm. ophiocordyceps is a, yeah, so the, the zombie uh, ant fungus is super cool. So, um, and there's a number of people working to figure this critter out. It takes over the brain of the animal and it tells them to perch somewhere and then, then that results in the kills the animal and the spore gets spread that it'll infect another animal it's super cool and now it kind of turns them into these zombies though like where some ants will crawl up a plant stem perch out on a leaf and then wait until the cordyceps explodes from their head and infects all of their family members yeah i think the that usually the explosion happens after the ants are already dead and perched but yeah they will go to a location that helps the dispersal of the fungal spores and so it turns out that and there's a recent paper that came out showing that the way that ants bite onto the tissue corresponds to the environment they're in that they're in um so to help it spread more effectively I mean, does this stuff ever just completely boggle you? Like, do you start thinking, do you get galaxy brain where you're like, what is anything? Is this all a simulation? Does dark matter teach ants what to do? Like, do you ever get stonery about this stuff? Uh, yeah, I kind of used to. But the thing is, for every single thing that I read about that's weird, I know like people have already figured out like even weirder things. And so I think it's like, wow, that's super cool. I mean, yeah, that's amazing. You know, but then there are these flukes, you know, that will have like three or four different hosts, for example. So they'll infect a bird and they'll infect a snail and like an alien and, you know, and, mm-hmm. and then this complex life cycle and it affects the behavior of every single one. And so, I mean, I look at I'm like. Cordyceps seems kind of straightforward compared to some of these other crazy, like, host-altering ones. Like, you know, does the toxoplasmosis actually cause people to not have fear or so on? Like, I don't know. This isn't even college roommate bong ripper philosophy. This is just the wild world of brain parasites. Speaking of peril, Kellen Freeman and uh, Ray Kasha both want to know how the death spiral works. What is happening in an ant death spiral? Okay, so th- so for the uninitiated, the death spiral is this thing where so army ants ha- uh, forage in these big raids, and so they all follow one another. If you were to take a bunch of army ants and somehow separate them from the rest of their colony, you can trick them, or they might accidentally would happen, like would march in a big circle. Right. They just follow one another. This, and so they basically create a single pheromonal trail. And it's a death spiral. They just keep marching and marching until they're <gasps> all dead. Why? Yeah. Well, because the thing is, they all follow one another in big trails. So, so like individual ant colonies can solve complex problems and do big things. But ant workers are dumb and they follow simple rules. 
Terry explains how this is kind of like computer code. And so if you have an army ant colony that's a quarter million ants, Mm -hmm. every ant is doing, following a simple program. And when you have all these simple bits of code together, then they function. But if you were to take some of these individual ants and separate them from the other ants, then they're just kind of screwed and they'll just wander around. Like, so if you take an ant and bring her away from her colony to the far enough away that she'll never get back, she's not like that dog that's going to cross the whole country and find its way home. Peter. Shadow! Oh, Peter. I worried about you so. Yeah, no, it's not like 1993's Homeward Bound. You know, it's going to be like, oh, I don't know where to go and then wander around aimlessly until it tries to find some signal about where its home might be. And then it won't. And they'll just die. Bummer. Huh? This is a bummer, man. So Tracy Benhamow wants to know, I have to know, will ants added to a camping saute add a little flavor like lemon juice due to the acetic acid in their heads? Have you eaten ants? Yeah, some ants. Yeah, yeah. I try not to. I'm vegetarian, so I, I extend that to insects. (laughs) Um, But I've tried some and inadvertently, I mean, we all eat insects when we don't try. So there are some ants that taste absolutely horrible. But for instance, in in this part of the world, we have what we call citronella ants. And so they live underground in in genus Lasius and they actually have a citronella-y order to them. And so the weaver ants in Southeast Asia and Northern Aust- in the Australian wet tropics, they have a lemony flavor to their butt. Some people call them lemon ants. I don't think they have that much acetic acid. I mean, there's formic acid, butyric acid. So acetic acid is straight up vinegar. Lemon ants, by the way, release this citrusy smell when attacked to warn others. And they also use formic acid as an herbicide. And that creates clearings in the forest where nothing really grows. This is called a devil's garden, which is definitely a venue that my existential metal band, Mere Meat, would love to play. But ants would might t- add other flavors. I mean, people will eat, um, will roast, you know, like queens of leafcutter ants. People um, once a year will collect the brood of weaver ants and collect them in large, large numbers. You can get them in ethnic food stores and jars here. Oh, wow. I hear that they might be a little spicy, too. Some ants. Oh, some of them, yeah. I have a little bit of spice, yeah. Crazy. I think I've eaten ants. I can't. I, I think I've had ants on a cookie on purpose, but yeah. yeah. Mm, um, let's see. Elliot Anaya wants to know: Do it fart? Do ants fart? Oh my god! I haven't gotten to that page in the book yet. So Terry is referencing the best-selling book. Does it fart? Now I don't have a copy of this book, but I do have evidence that Ant Man might, taken from this Screen Junkies interview with Paul Rudd. <laughs> Paul runs tooting. He has either a very squeaky chair or problematic intestines. Ant farms, yes or no? Um, Ant farm, the ones that you buy out of the box, Uncle Uncle Milton, no. Um, Because they're all going to die. Because they don't send you a queen. They just die. And it's like, so it's like there's these onion articles about getting an ant farm is a lesson and toiling until you die. That's what that is. But if you were to build your own ant farm and collect your own ant colony, there are many uh, amateur like ant enthusiasts um, who really know their biology and are super cool. And there's ant chat rooms and they're willing to help. And so if you want your own ant colonies, then doing it that way, yes. Oh, so as long as you get the queen and you set it up right and you do it respectfully. Yeah, exactly. That's cool. I didn't yeah, know Yeah, super that. cool. There's a whole community of people who do that. 
you know what? I can't have a dog in this apartment, but maybe I could adopt like a couple thousand ants. You could totally have an ant colony in here. Yeah. Right. I just found my summer project. Yeah. <laughs> a few different people like Craig uh, Minami and Sarah Sparrow want to know if there are plants or natural remedies or other insects that you could use in your house to deter ants. Um, probably not. Okay. So <laughs> the, there's a lot of, uh, you know, discussion about well, what chemicals could you use? Could you spray powder or chalk or cayenne pepper or whatever? Pretty much those don't work. Okay. Cinnamon? No? No. God, just checking. Okay. So the answer is no. The answer is get a cock gun. Cock gun. Yeah. Or I mean, so the, a, a general answer would be, um, would be to kill your lawn. What? Right. Cause I mean, so the, I mean, so of course I've killed my lawn and I still have trouble with ants. At least if you're in a place, a dry place like in California, mm -hmm. where you have all these Argentine ants, they are fed by moisture. If it's dry, you don't have them. Um, it's like we were doing a cleanup in Compton Creek up on a dry spot and you had harvester ants like right there in the middle of urban whatever. Oh, wow. Harvester ants just on the lookout for that quality, organic, free range, gluten free seed to eat. Whereas Argentine ants are munching on pizza crust under a dead possum and loving it. Often the invasive species will be following water or following human disturbance. And so, so if you get all your neighbors together and have more native landscaping, then you have fewer of these invasive ants that would be taking over your house. But once inside, but I think the key is to keep from letting them in. Okay. So that just gently follow them home like an absolute creep. Right. Yeah. Anna Thompson wants to know, are there loner or introvert ants who are not down with the social thing? The only non-social ants we have are, are want colonies that produce what we call social parasites. Whereas actually they're not colonies. They are non-social ants. And so they only produce queens and males. And what they do is the queens will then fly off and live inside the colony of other ants and take their food and lay their own eggs and sneak them in with the rest of the colony. So side note, the fact that ants don't have a long running reality show franchise is an artistic failing of our culture. And then she'll just make queens and males to make new colonies. So they're so they're socially parasitic and they evolved after ants originally evolved. Oh, wow. They're kind of like sociopaths. They just exactly. come in like freeloaders. They're total freeloaders. Yeah. Total narcissists. So all other ants are social. Oh, I didn't know that. Danny K wants to know, have you ever spelled your name out in ant pheromones a la E.O. Williams? I have not spelled my name out in ant pheromones. Okay. Just checking. Um, Zach Tarbell wants to know, I heard that ants are great at predicting weather. Is there any truth to this? Yeah, they are. The one example I can think of is they're great in predicting weather is if they know if it's really going to rain. Um, so in the, for instance, um, in dry areas like in the southwestern U.S., like they reproduce after a rainstorm. And so you'll often if you're going to have a lot of rain, like there's mating flights. And so sometimes they'll start flying before the rains hit. And so often people studying them who are trying to collect them can look at the weather reports and be like, oh, I bet they're going to fly tonight. And you said queens. Do some colonies have multiple queens or no? Yeah. So um, many kinds of ants will have more than one queen per colony. Oh, okay. Oh, I didn't know that. Sean and Josh Grandinetti want to know what's the most amazing ant behavior you've seen and do they have self-awareness? Do they? Have, I don't think they have if we say talk about self-awareness as in like cognition where they recognize themselves in the mirror, I don't 
think so. Okay. Okay, so the most amazing behavior I've seen um, deals with the army ants that roam across the ground and eat all the other ants that they find. There's this colony of ants, which we now call Cappadocian ants. Okay, so I looked this up, and this is a region in Turkey that's known in part for its elaborate network, you ready for this, of underground cities, hidden tunnels that could house possibly up to 20,000 people, the entrances of which could be concealed by boulders. It's like full underground cities we just discovered a few years ago. Like, if you are an archaeologist working on this with any kind of hookup, please do holler. I am hereby begging you. Okay, but back to ants. So, but there are these Cappadocian ants that are really tiny, um, but routinely are subjected to attack by army ants. Outside their nest entrance, they have a little pebble sitting outside. And when an an aggressive ant comes to the ant colony and they smell them, an ant will come out and drag that pebble and plug the nest shut. And so you can stimulate this behavior by getting any kind of really aggressive smelly ant, like an army ant, and wave it in front of the ant entrance and they'll come out and they'll grab that little pebble and close it shut. Damn, they're like, nothing to see here. You're not getting in here. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Like in horror movies, when you see someone block the door with a chair and you're like, that'll keep them out. <laughs> That's so smart. Um, I love this question so much. Jade wants to know. And we ask, I ask this definitely from a lot of ologists, but Jade wants to know which is more accurate scientifically, a bug's life or ants? Hmm. Bug's life. Really? Which do you have a do you have a preference between both ant movies? Gosh, well, I've only seen each of them once. Okay, and if uh, and I generally I just found the ants one annoying. Like when Woody Allen has a good movie, he's good, but otherwise it's like, uh, you know. And then there's all these other issues with Woody Allen, and so. um, But I think Bugs Life in general, the whole concept about the colony, you know, having a seasonal nature and working together and storing food. But no, I think I mean, but in general, in terms of the life history of the ants, I think it's far better than the ants movie. Ant Man, I thought was wonderful with ant biology. I thought a lot of stuff was spot on. It was. Dare I say, in some ways, it was realistic. Like, Whoa! Right? Now, when you go to your next myrmecology conference, will you guys probably talk about that and be like, hey, who did the consulting on that? Because it was like, pretty good job. Yeah, we all know the dude who did the consulting on it. Oh, yeah, really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, last one ant meeting, I was talking to the, to, it was a, yeah, the grad student who worked on it and, and he did a great job. And he's like, oh, the one thing I'm really annoyed about, he was telling me, was that, that they didn't do the all ants being female right that right. was my next question like how do you feel when you watch the bug's life and it's like protagonist is like a little male ant are you like what yeah, well i don't know See, the thing is it's like if you're going to explain why all ants are female that's not an easy discussion i think old me and other more pedantic people would be like oh my gosh are you kidding how can you let them get that wrong that's like the most basic thing ever yeah but you know, recent me is like, well, you know, actually, since it's not an easy thing to explain and it's rather obscure and it doesn't in the grand scheme of thing make that much difference, then maybe we should just say, well, yeah, they're, you know, sure, fine, whatever. Let's not talk about gender. So Terry says that there's one character named Antony that is clearly morphologically, physically a queen, but it's a male which was noted by the consultants, but the studio was like, nah, it's fine. 
because there's all these other things they had absolutely right about all the other ants, all these, oh, well, carpenter ants are like this and they do this and, you know, and bullet ants are like this. And they had all that stuff right. Yeah. And they looked like them and they behaved like them. It was like amazing. And so I think, so they made some decision at the home office, like, okay, we know the consultant told us about this, but screw it. We're just not going to do that. I do feel like a lot of people know that, that social insects tend to be primarily female. Do you know what I mean? I feel like yeah. a lot of people, like, you don't have to be like a super, super obscure, like a myrmecology groupie to know that. But what, um, can you describe in a nutshell, why they are female. I know you said it's obscure and complex. Okay. But in um, in ants, bees, and wasps, mm -hmm. the males have a single copy of the genes. They are haploid. Okay. And females have two copies of the genes, meaning they're diploid. And so that's a thing in this group. That's just the way they are. And so that means that when males are making sperm... There's no meiosis. There's no sorting of genes. So in other words, all male sperm is identical. Oh, wow. And so their sperm is an exact copy of them. Oh, weird. And so that results weirdness, these asymmetries in relatedness. But for the most part, like most of the social animals that are truly social that way mm -hmm. have that genetic thing going on. And then how, how do they know that the eggs are just going to be female? Essentially, there's like a competition or a war or whatever in the colony where a queen will lay an egg and she can choose to make it a male or a female depending on whether or not she squirts sperm on it. Because in insects, the females have an organ called a spermatheca that stores sperm. So, so males die after they have sex for the most part. Mm -hmm. But worse for females, what they do is they just don't have sex again. They just store the sperm for the rest of their life. Oh, right? man. You get one super lay and then you're like, yeah. I guess I'm celibate. Yeah. Or maybe a bunch. And then you have sperm for multiple males. But then that's it. Okay. Yeah. Right. And so then, so then she lays an egg. She can make it a male by not putting any sperm on it, or she can make it a female by fertilizing it. Oh. When she makes a male, that's a hundred percent her genes, right? Oh, wow. Okay. That's kind of crazy. So genetically, it's in the female's interest actually to make males because the males are more closely related to her than her daughters who are only 50% related to her. So if a, if a queen essentially is being selfish, then she's making too many males. But then the workers will get pissed off. And, and if the, you know, because the mm -hmm. workers want them to lay sisters because the work, because the workers are more closely related to the sisters. Oh my God. And it's like Game of Thrones. Yeah, it's totally Game of Thrones. And so, and so there's all these conflicts of interest and it's a total mess. So for a long time, scientists were very firm in thinking that the relatedness caused the evolution of social behavior, but... There's a new generation of scientists that didn't live through these wars, but anyone who's my generation or older, like... Like we're talking as fighting words. Really? Yeah. Drama. So drama in the colony, drama outside of the colony, looking at the colony. Yeah, totally. <gasps> Who knew that ant life was just like such a roiling soap opera? Yeah. Okay. So last questions. What do you hate about your job other than getting stung by bullet ants? Oh, gosh. I guess... Well, I, I guess I don't... Wow, oh, this is a hard thing to say because it's so awesome. But as a myrmacologist, what do I hate about being a myrmacologist? Um, I guess it's because being in Southern California, the ants are relatively boring compared to so many other parts of the world. Oh, we, we don't have quite as much like trapdoor ants and fungus ants. And we've got like... 
We've got a couple big species battling it out. Right. So you have Argentine ants, which is like, oh, it's an invasive species and blah, 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 blah. And then the, some of the native ants, oh, they're kind of cool. But it's like once you get tropical, then you see all these amazing things. And so I see them when I go elsewhere, mm-hmm. but not when I'm here. So I guess it keeps you thirsty for field research. Right. Yeah, you know exactly. I mean? Are you ever like at a picnic in L.A. or like at someone's house and you get distracted by ants and you're like, oh, I got to go look at that. Yeah, once in a while and people will chortle and be like, ooh, you know. I should have like a vial in my pocket at all times, but I don't. But some people I know, they don't go anywhere without a vial. Do you have friends who call you Ant-Man? Yeah, there's a few. And then what do you love the most about being a myrmecologist? <laughs> there's still so much mystery. Like, it's a whole frontier. As Corey Moreau recently pointed out, there's like a few hundred people in the world that are that you know have labs that are focusing on studying ants um and there's so many things that we don't know and especially in the tropics you know wherever you go there are ants and they are doing things that are running the world and so um it's hard to not discover cool things if you choose to look and if you had to glean some self-help information from ants is there anything that ants have inspired you to do differently with your life or could inspire us to do? Within ant colonies, there's a lot of conflict. And despite the reputation for having their act together and working really hard, there's a lot of lazy ants that are waiting for other ants to do their job. <laughs> and so, I, I mean, if I, I think so I would think of ant col- if you were to look at an ant colony, most ants aren't doing anything. Really? For if you for every ant that you see above ground doing something, there's ten ants like sitting on their ass doing nothing underground. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> and so I think that's a good counter example for me. Like ants, like instead of being the go to the ant thou sluggard, they work really hard. Blah blah blah. It's like no ants like are waiting for other ants to do their job before they they can do theirs. They're they're like the opposite of being hardworking entrepreneurial, whatever. And so they're a counter example. That's that's how I learned from ants. Does that make you work harder or chill more? No, I think I, I, I think I should learn from them that I probably should do my own, choose my own path and do my own thing rather than just try to perform the role that I think I'm supposed to be doing. Like, for instance, if my house is messy, it's because, well, my wife's waiting for me to do the dishes and I'm waiting for her to do the dishes so they don't get done. That's the kind of thing that may or may not that I could kind of see happening in an ant colony where they follow the rules. If the if the individual washing dishes isn't there at the moment, then it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Right. That's so funny to think about lazy ants, like making you take initiative. Yeah. Which, by the way, I have a sink full of dirty dishes and I live alone. So uh, this is the saddest thing. (laughs) I was going to blame it myself. I'm my own lazy ant. (laughs) This was so informative. I love this. I don't think I'm ever going to look at ants the same. I mean, I already love them, but I'm definitely going to be more prone to just seeing where they're headed. Yeah, you just watch them. I mean, so the thing is, if your kitchen is overrun with ants, you don't have to freak out and like wipe them all away because if you wait five more minutes, it's not going to get worse. You might as well just watch them, right? And, and then you nuke them. Thank you so much for being here. This was dope. I loved it. Thank you so much. So go around and go ask some smart people some not smart questions all you want. Even if they seem like small inquiries, the answers might be mighty. So now go find Terry McLinn on Twitter. He's at Ormiga. H-O-R-M-I-G-A on Twitter, which is Spanish for ant. 
Nice. He's also at leaflitter.org. He's so great. And we are at Ologies on Twitter and Instagram. I'm Allie Ward with one L on both. So do say hello. Uh, thank you again to birthday girl Aaron Talbert for adminning the Ologies podcast Facebook group. Thank you to Shannon Abani for helping out too. Thank you, Emily White of The Wordery, who makes our professional transcripts. Kayla Patton bleep swears out of the episodes. And you can find both of those at alleyward.com slash ologies dash extras for free. Anyone who needs them. Thank you, Susan Hale and Noelle Dilworth for keeping the Ologies business running behind the scenes. Thank you, Kelly Dwyer, for making my website. She can make yours, too. Her link is in the show notes. Thank you, Stephen Ray Morris, for the original edit of this episode. Thank you, and very, very happy birthday to Zeke Rodriguez-Thomas, who works on Smologies. He's wonderful. Those are short, classroom-friendly versions of classics that come out about every two weeks. So thank you again, Zeke, for doing those. Thank you, Nick Thorburn, who made the theme music. Thank you to Dr. Tegan Wall for saying that male ants are called uncles a joke for which she gave me permission to steal. And of course, thank you to Queen of This Castle, Jarrett Sleeper, for helping put up this encore and driving to and from my parents all weekend while I very literally drooled on myself in the passenger seat. Um, If you stick around until the end of the episode, I tell you a secret. And this secret is that I have one of those pilea plants. They're called like pancake plants. They look like coins on stems. And it was given to me as a housewarming gift three years ago. And I've been really weirdly superstitious about not killing it. Like I'm really afraid to kill that one. And I haven't. And it's been two and a half, three years, but it's starting to grow tall. And it has like this naked stem that's bending over. And I don't know what to do. I never thought it would live this long. I'm so anxious about it not dying. And I think I I think it needs a stick to prop it up, but I don't know. It's one of the few plants I've never killed. Also, I ordered a new toothbrush holder which will make more sense if you listen to last week's episode. Okay, bye-bye. because it's so awesome. Hey guys, Sean Hayes here. Jason Bateman, Will Arnett, and I had a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to sit down with not one, not two, but three presidents of the United States on our recent episode of Smartless. That's because President Biden, a returning guest, brought two of his favorite pals, former presidents Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, all joined us for unforgettable conversation. It's a historic episode of Smartless as we pry into the minds of these remarkable leaders. We'll cover everything from their time in office, America's responsibilities in the world, and their personal passions in an episode full of some candid stories, insightful perspectives, and a few surprises along the way. Whether you're a political junkie or just curious about the inner workings of the Oval Office, this episode is a must-listen. Don't miss out on this incredible opportunity to hear from three of the most influential figures in recent American history. Follow Smartless on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen to Smartless ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. 
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Listen, we're all carrying around just a backpack of stressors and sadnesses. When we keep them all zipped up and the load gets heavier, it can start to affect us negatively. You start to feel misunderstood, sad, resentful. A safe place to unpack that is, you guessed it, therapy. Therapists can help you dump out your bag and work through the heavy garbage that's weighing you down, in my case at least. I've used BetterHelp. They have definitely helped me understand that pushing my feelings down does not actually make them go away. It makes them feel worse. So if you've been thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. It's suited to your schedule. You fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's so much faster and easier than trying to hunt down a therapist from just online listings and cold calling. That's one thing I love about BetterHelp. And if for any reason you're not vibing with your therapist, you can switch anytime, no additional charge, no drama. So unburden yourself and trauma dump onto someone who's trained for this. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash ologies today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ologies.